0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Hello. Today I'll be talking about the foundations of cooperative breeding in human evolution. Humans are arguably one of the most biologically successful species on the planet our success may be linked with our extraordinary ability to cooperate with one another. While cooperation is observed in many other species, human cooperation is anomalous in both nature and scale. We form long lasting ties with both genetically related and unrelated individuals. And this cooperation is linked with reproduction. To interrogate this relationship and how it differs from that of great apes, we have to consider the reproductive challenges faced by our ancestors and the larger social context in which they unfolded. Around 7 million years ago, humans diverged from other great apes. At some point in our evolutionary history, perhaps around the time when our genus Homo evolved two to 2.5 million years ago, we evolved a number of distinct features that are associated with reproduction and parenting. Humans are one of the only mammalian species that has long-term reproductive bonds, though these are not necessarily sexually or socially monogamous, and we also allocate varying degrees of reproductive effort to paternal investment. In addition to these behaviors, female life history has several unique traits that help to define us as a species. A comparative understanding of the reproductive trade-offs and challenges that a human mother faces situates parenting and reproduction in an evolutionary framework, a necessary first step to understanding how cooperative breeding is central to the story of our species. Human mothers have a distinct life history compared to other primates and to other great apes. Many aspects of our reproduction are different. We have a later age at first birth with cross-cultural averages, suggesting that this is around 18 to 20 years old for many societies. A later age at first reproduction permits slower growth and over a longer period of time, a so-called slow life history. Mammals with slow life histories tend to have larger bodies, which means that they're able to produce more energetically expensive infants those that are larger-bodied and larger-brained. Humans certainly fall into this category and give birth to comparatively large-brained and large-bodied infants. Despite this, human gestation time remains average compared to other primates, leading many to argue that humans are secondarily altricial, which means that they're relatively helpless when they're born and a significant amount of postnatal growth happens outside of the womb. It's typical for species with slow-life histories to wean their infants later and increase the space between births. Human reproduction is unique in another way because we exhibit the opposite pattern. We wean our infants sooner and have a decreased space between births compared to most other apes. Most mammalian infants are weaned when their first permanent molar erupts or when their weight reaches approximately one-third of their mother's body weight. Humans deviate from this pattern, and we wean our infants around two years of age, long before they reach this weight, which incidentally would be between six to seven years old in most populations. Early weaning then allows for a decrease in the time between offspring, a so-called short interbirth interval because it allows mothers to return to ovulation sooner and begin reproducing. Human mothers have the unique ability to stack their infants, being responsible for multiple energetically expensive offspring who require different types and degrees of investment from provisioning to childcare. Weaning infants early while they are still nutritionally immature and cannot provide for themselves has important consequences for a human mother. In our evolutionary past, a mother would have had to rely on other group members for nutritional subsidies to support such a reproductive system. It's been estimated that it takes roughly 13 million kilocalories to raise an infant from birth to nutritional independence. The nutritional requirements of successfully rearing one child, let alone two or three, surpass what a mother is able to provide on her own necessitating contributions from others. These contributions which likely start in infancy with the provisioning of weaning foods then continue into the extended period of development that we call childhood. This challenging task of caring for multiple dependent offspring with various needs is one of the distinct features of being a human mother and it's something that other apes don't contend with. So the question is, how did this life history evolve in our species? And how did our foremothers do it? The answer is that they did it with help. This form of child rearing and of reproduction can be called cooperative breeding, a reproductive system where group members, other than the biological parents or alloparents, aid in the care and provisioning of young. This concept was introduced by Sarah Hurdy in her book, Mother Nature, first published in 1999, and greatly expanded upon in her book, Mothers and Others, first published in 2009. Many of us now use the term allomother to acknowledge that paternal investment in humans is facultative. The cooperative breeding hypothesis proposes that apes with the life history attributes of homo sapiens could not have evolved unless allomothers had help in caring for and provisioning young. More recently, other scholars have offered alternative terms to describe this human specific pattern of cooperation in the provisioning and care of young, but the concept remains similar or is the same as that which Hurdy originally proposed. Hurdy has gone on to argue that this unusual mode of rearing young generated novel ape phenotypes subsequently subjected to directional selection that favored those infants who were better at monitoring mental states and intentions of others, successfully eliciting care. The result was an ape who was already socially intelligent, who was emotionally and cognitively pre-adapted for the evolution of higher levels of cooperation The cooperative breeding hypothesis has had an incredible impact on scholarship being produced in a wide range of disciplines, ranging from neuroscience to human biology to social psychology. Scholars are now reframing the ways in which we think about the evolution of parenting and the evolution of cooperation in light of the cooperative breeding hypothesis. And much of my own work over the past 15 years has tested the cooperative breeding hypothesis and has explored who helps moms in different contexts and across different ecologies. Since 2004, I've worked with a community of hunter-gatherers who live in East Africa, the Hadza. This community represents one of the few remaining populations on the planet that still forages for a large part of their diet. This means that they collect plant foods and hunt game animals and they couple these wild foods with other domesticated foods, like wheat, uh, that they get through trade, purchase, or donation. They live in tightly knit social groups, and they practice distributed child care, making them an ideal population in which to study allomaternal investment or distributed child care. And it helps us better understand what these behaviors look like cross-culturally. Importantly, the children of this community also contribute to the household economy, which I argue, along with others, is a key feature of the story of cooperative breeding. Hadza children make important contributions to their household in a variety of ways. My colleagues and I have shown over a number of years and laid out in several publications that children not only take care of younger children acting as babysitters, but they also contribute in other ways. They do household chores, such as collecting water and firewood, and collect, process, and prepare food, both for themselves and others. They collect a wide variety of food, which ranges from figs, tubers, and berries, mainly targeted by girls, to small game animals like birds and monkeys, and honey, mainly targeted by boys. Given the important contributions that Hadza children can make, they're certainly offsetting the cost of their own care. So while children are being provisioned, they're also actively contributing to meeting their own caloric needs and those of others, both children and adults. Karen Kramer, another anthropologist who has studied the help that children can provide, has long argued that this type of intergenerational transfer of food is a critical and often overlooked component of human cooperative breeding. So what does this tell us? As these findings are in alignment with findings from different cultures and ecologies all around the world, we now have over 20 years of robust data collection from a wide range of societies that confirms that cooperative breeding, regardless of what you name this reproductive strategy, is a key feature of human evolution and one that distinguishes us from other apes. Based on what we know about human evolution, we know that a human mother's best reproductive strategy is a flexible one. The story of human mothering from an evolutionary perspective is a story of cooperation, as she must rely on assistance from others, a support network that includes a wide array of caregivers. We also know that there are a few key players or allo mothers who consistently rise to the top in terms of investing in young. These include the father of the infant, grandmothers, and other children, the category of helper who I've spent much of my career studying. And cooperative breeding still matters. While the constellation of caregivers may change depending on subsistence, regime, ecology, or degree of market integration, the underlying theme is that help matters. This is true in our own culture, as well as in small-scale, non-industrial foraging populations. Mothers across temporal and geographic space rely on assistance from a wide range of helpers. Despite increasing changes in demography and residence patterns throughout the world, aloe mothers, in whatever form they manifest, continue to provide for, nurture, and bond with children underscoring not only how central cooperative breeding is to the anthropology of reproduction, but also to what makes us and our reproductive lives distinctly human. I'd like to take an opportunity to thank all of my funding agencies and my collaborators, including the co-director of my lab, Daniel Benishek, and my doctoral students, Kristen Herlosky, Trevor Pollum, and Kaylee Meehan. I'd also like to thank my longtime collaborator and postdoc, Stephanie Schnorr and my former student and current collaborator, Shayna Lev-Levy. I'd like to thank my Tanzanian support staff, including Ibrahim Mabula and Shani M. Safiri Mongola, and of course, the Hadza, who have been gracefully putting up with my intrusions for years. Thank you so much for listening.
0: I'm
2: going to assume that we've already talked about this phylogeny, but I wanna remind everybody that now we know, which we didn't know not so long ago, how closely we're related to the great apes, that we now all belong to this hominid family. And some of them are actually closer to us than they are to each other. And yet, you know, we look at them, we look at those great apes, and in every single case, it's independent mothering, Babies are already starting to eat on their own, even while they're nursing and then when they're when they're weaned, they get their own lunch and then there's us now I'm using this Hadza couple to represent modern humans. They are modern humans, but there is something special about them I'm going to continue to talk about. And the the common story about what happened in our lineage is that moving into the savannah, hunting was a better way to make a living than um, living on the, the soft fruits and leaves of the forest. And so moms did better to pair with a hunting mate who then went off and hunted and brought home the bacon and we get the sexual division of labor and that paternal provisioning supported the kids. And so we get nuclear families as these units of common interest. And and that continues to be a favored idea about our evolution but we have lots of chances to look at modern people. Again, it's only us moderns that are left in lots of places where they're living entirely on wild foods, that's special. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just using wild resources. We can learn a lot from that uh, because they know what they're doing. So we can see how they do it, what the problems are. But it's also the case that wherever we find modern people doing this, they're also using stuff that wasn't around a long time ago, like like metal pots or metal axes or, or even uh, shotguns. We can still learn from them, but... There is a place in the world, one of the examples where people, when we were studying them, were entirely living on wild foods, except for a couple of percent of things that came in from elsewhere. In a part of the world that's especially interesting because it's this part of Africa where we have such a deep record of our evolutionary history. And so here is a place where there's a long archeological record. My colleagues, Jim O'Connell uh, and Nick Blurton-Jones, one of them is an archeologist, O'Connell. So he was especially interested in what the archeology span looks like, given that this is going on. And so we paid very close attention to every single big animal that was taken. He followed where every animal fell, how it was cut apart, what happened to the bones, all those things. And as a consequence of that, uh, we had this fantastic record Uh, where we could calculate the the chance of actually getting one of these big carcasses on any average hunter day. And these guys are very good, and they're modern people, and they're using bows and arrows, which weren't around if we go very far into the deeper past. And yet their capture chance on any day was way less than 5%. But when they hit, whoa, big bonanza. So these guys are sitting on a giraffe carcass. And the thing is, it was just one guy who hit the giraffe. They're all sitting there for their picture. But everybody knows who it was. And the the story goes around. Everybody knows. And not only that, everybody comes to the kill site to eat and take stuff away and to, as the Hadza say, help eat the meat. So, wow, this is no way to solve the problem of eating every day. And when it comes to that, what the women and children are doing is so important. So this, the the story right here about it's all about a provisioning father. And that's the story that's so different from our closest cousins. We see that these little Hadza kids are there trying to go for the things that are um, the the key uh, resource year-round, these deeply buried tubers, um, but they're just too little to do it. So they try, and they still have to depend on their moms, which they do, and we could see it in the weights, until she has a new baby, as this woman does. And then she's still foraging, but she's got something else going on. And so now these kids, the, the weaned ones, now our weights showed that they were actually depending on their grandmothers. And key things about these resources that are so different from what these our our closest living cousins are eating, these guys, our closest living cousins, are starting to feed themselves while they're still nursing. Well, little kids cannot do it with these these savannah resources. Adults can get high rates daily, predictable, every day. And the the way in which it pays the forage is a little more effort, a little more effort, and your returns go up in this way so that doing things in batches is the economic way to forage. So these older women, and here are some old Hadza women well into their 60s when these uh, photographs were taken they're adding to the batches and we've got this gregarious foraging everybody's there the other uh, these old women younger women all these kids so the productivity of the older women is contributing to what's there and these subsidize the fertility of the women who are still in the fertile ages they can have the next baby sooner because the previous one is not gonna starve. And so now when we look at this difference between us and our close cousins, uh, chimpanzees, best data on on great apes for, for uh, life history comes from, from chimpanzees. And what we're looking at here is just the female side of the age pyramid, but here chimpanzees, and so each one of these bars is a five-year age class. And um, so what happens is mortality and these green bars are the females who are still in their fertile years. They're still cycling. But if you're a chimpanzee female, you're likely to die while you're still cycling. It's very few that live beyond their fertile years. Our fertility ends at about the same age. But if you're human, then, and we're looking at uh, Hads of folks to represent humans, so mortality is higher than it is in m- the populations that most of us live in. But here, even though mortality is higher, if you make it to be an adult, the chances of living beyond your fertility are way greater than even. And so what we see in human populations is that this enormous fraction of female years lived is post-fertile. And so over here, we've got these grandmothers whose work is allowing the the still fertile females to have next baby sooner because it's keeping the still dependent uh, young ones alive. Um, And we get a life history that goes with that. So very exciting that we get these pieces to fit together, the earlier weaning, the greater longevity, even though, and the later maturity, even though um, the uh, um, end of fertility is about the same. So the question is, no, it sounds like it could have been that way, but ooh, could it really happen? And that's why so great to have Peter Kim, who's a mathematical biologist say, get really interested in the question, Uh, building um, uh, agent-based models is one of his specialties. So this is uh, 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 the result of a series of simulations of an agent-based model in which the grade eight parameters do not change um, using chimpanzees mostly to estimate an ancestral condition and things stay there. It is an equilibrium for a million years. However, there are seven extinctions, which I, I may have a chance to say a little bit about, but if, then, one of these in his in his model is allowed to uh females the very few, and it's a tiny number who outlive their fertility are allowed their productivity is allowed to subsidize the fertility of the younger females, then this is what happens. 30 simulations when that's going on, and everyone, if they can escape the basin of attraction of that ape-like equilibrium, one thing happens, which is it moves, the simulation moves things to a new equilibrium, a new equilibrium with longevity that looks just like what we see with modern people living in this kind of mortality regime. And Peter's models are have both sexes. So we were just talking about the females initially. So we were just talking about this side. Now, uh, again, using Hadza folks to represent us, so the blue bars are humans, and the green bars are chimpanzees. Ooh, apologies to the blue-green, ooh, colorblind folks. But but one of the things that happens with this increased longevity is it's, we are... Uh, uh, two sex species. You know, half your autosomal genes come from dad and half come from mom. And the uh, increased longevity is happening on the male side. But uh, reproductive physiology in mammals means those mammals, uh, males are still producing gametes into those older ages. So now we got all these old guys. And that means that the sex ratio and these brackets are marking the sex ratio in the fertile ages is now male biased. And we know that this male bias across, I mean, it's common in birds and we see pairing in birds actually people started studying it in invertebrates wherever you see this male bias what it favors as strategies in males is to guard a mate once you get one hang on to that mate and this idea about mate guarding as what's really going on in 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 humans is has been around for a while but now here's another reason to think that might be might be what we're looking at here and if it is then and for, for this guy to actually make a claim on a mate and uh, get away with it depends on when the other guys will let him. And so his reputation as a hunter becomes hugely important because, boy, everybody knows about that. Everybody cares about that because they get in on the bonanzas when they happen. And so we see in the case of the Hadza or the Aceh, these are foragers in, in um, Eastern Paraguay and in South America or the Al this is Australia, where, ooh, interesting different story there, but also the old men are the ones who, manage to be running the show a lot. Their alliances are really important and dominate public affairs. But I wanna underline another thing that goes with this longevity. And here I'm relying on Barbara Finlay's work, a neuroscientist who's been looking at variation in mammal brains all the way across the class. And what her continually expanding data sets show is that brain size is a consequence of uh, developmental duration. So increasing longevity increases the time over which brains develop, resulting in larger brains and those parts scale. So the size of our neocortex is just the size it would be for a mammal brain of this size. So here's a hypothesis about our brains being larger because they're developing more slowly. So they end up being larger than chimpanzee brains. And yet weaning is earlier. So we've got this difference, and yet those brains are being wired early on by being confronted with, oh wow, mom's got something else going on. These shortened birth intervals. Moms, the hypothesis about this shift in life history is that mothers can spend less on each because somebody else is supplying crucial subsidies. And Sarah Hurdy has written so wonderfully about some of the consequences for, for infants and toddlers. The survival challenge under those circumstances is to attract somebody's Attention to engage others to pay attention to me. Am I not cute? Am I not worth your time and support? And so our babies have been, according to this hypothesis, wired to be socially So precocious. Now, no question that human babies are, you know, just babies They can't really do very much motorically, but developmental psychologists have been working on these issues without using this framework to think about it and attending to this active engagement that characterizes infants in living people. And so here the grandmother hypothesis that started out as a way of connecting foraging for these resources the kind of interdependence that for example modern people the hadza display this division of labor between older females and younger ones that that could have resulted in our postmenopausal longevity why there are all these postmenopausal women around like me you know still more or less coherent why our maturity is later why our weaning is earlier than our cousins How we could then colonize all these novel habitats that, of course, little ones couldn't possibly manage to feed themselves in. So really different from what we see in our close cousins. And now this hypothesis gives us additional correlated shifts that go with longevity, our bigger brains, the shift in sex ratio in the fertile ages, supplies, hypotheses about our pair bonding habits, and this set of challenges to infants as a way to understand why we do stuff like what I'm doing right here, which is trying to, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, Can we get on the same page? Can we connect with each other? That begins to start in infancy in human kids and the hypothesis that started with the life history change to explain the longevity now encompasses a whole array of other possibilities. So now is such an interesting time to be studying the human ape paradox.
0: Hello, and my talk, I'm Margaret Schoeninger and I am co-director of CARTA and I will be giving a presentation on diet nutrition and food for thought. And why do we want to do food for thought? And the reason is because either we have easily metabolized energy available to us as food and therefore we grew large brains or we had our brain site actually selected upon directly and therefore had to have easily metabolized food. And I would say neither one of these two hypotheses has really been supported in any particular way. But what I want to show you is the two models that demonstrate the one. Under the more traditional model that I think we see here on the left-hand side, your left-hand side, what you see is a picture that shows pan troglodytes, a chimpanzee, with brain size as the average and then you have what looks like a curve, a very sharp curvilinear increase up to Homo habilis and then on to more modern Homo. The other Dubai do du et all in 2018, plotted all known brain sizes that we could estimate from cranial sizes. And I think what you'll see is if you take out all of the very large tooth, what we call Megadont fossils, you get more of a gradual increase in brain size. And with a more gradual increase in brain size, it's either a very minor selection on brain size increase, or it could be that brain size has allowed to be increased because of increase in terms of easily metabolized food energy. So uh, thank you to Pascal Gagneau for this lovely picture, this uh, collage of undergraduates at UCSD and whatever the foods are that they might have eaten, usually for breakfast, but for other meals as well. And I don't think you would find a lot of commonality across these, but I'm, I hope I can pull this together and show you that there are some commonalities. So let's begin with early primates. What is it about fossil primates? There have been two major hypotheses about the origins of primates, the members of our uh, group of mammals. And the first one was that early primates were, were actually predators, uh, visually oriented predators. They were going after insects and they were going after insects in trees and they were active on small uh, branches. So they were small, we know they were small. And that would mean a diet of protein and fat because that's the, those are the two major components in insects. The second hypothesis uh, came out with an observation that early primates co-evolved with flowering plants probably 60, probably not 100 million years ago, but around 60 million years ago. And in that case, they were insectivores as main protein, but they were also frugivores. That means fruit eater. Same thing, they were arboreal, they were active on small branches, but here their diet is basically protein and sugar, not protein and fat. And I think uh, you'll make sense of this when I move along a little forward. When we look at some of the earliest, what we call archaic primates, these were the ancestors of real primates. This is a genus and species called Carpalesti simpsoni, It was published in 2017 uh, and by Mary Silox and group. It's a brown, 57 million years old, probably one of the earliest and most complete of the early primates that we have. We have almost all of the post-crania, a lot of the cranium. And what you'll notice, I think, are these teeth, which probably to many of you will look like rodent teeth, but they aren't. They are not ever growing and they are used Probably to break open hard-shelled fruits, like orangutan seed. If you look back at the undergraduates at UCSD, I have white check marks here for all of the fruit that I could find. And I think, and I'm sure I have missed some, but if you'll notice, I think most everyone has some kind of fruit on their plate. The normal primate food. Fruit. So let's look across all living primates, non-human primates, and what we see is one of the strongest constraints on what an animal eats, and primates in particular is a body body size constraint. So if you look at very small primates, like this little um, uh, mouse lemur, what you see is that they really focus on insects. Uh, There aren't that many insects in a forest. They are small, they don't need that many insects, they're, they're arboreal, and they can move around. Insects, however, are variable in energy, but they are very high in protein. Variable to digest if they have a hard exoskeleton, but a primate with those hands can open up the exoskeleton and be able to get at the animal inside, the, the actual eating uh, the fat and the energy the fat and the protein. If you look at very large primates like gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, orangutans, humans, what we see across all of those except humans is that their main energy source is leaves. Now leaves are low in energy. All that energy is tied up within cell walls. It's very difficult to digest. We do not have the enzymes to break open those cell walls, but they are high in protein and as I said, they're hard to digest. So you have very large animals who have very large gut GI tracts and take a long time to digest. I'm showing you up here that not all fruits are the types of our domesticated fruits. These can have hard at exoskelo- hard outsides, or they can be hard all the way through with very little sweet in them. But the main part of this would be energy is low in the leaf, the fruit then could do it if they're not eating just, just leaves. Most primates do not rely on just leaves or just insects. What they are doing is they're relying either on fruit and insects or fruit and leaves. And so I've just shown the sort of generalized primate, the macaque, Macaca mulata. And what we have here is if they are eating leaves, those are gonna be hard to digest. If they're eating insects, they are variable to digest. But they're using fruit again as the energy. In other words, a sugar as the energy source. If we look at John Flegel's schemata that was done uh, upgraded last in 2012, and you look across all primates, I think you'll see it again in a maybe a more uh, an easier way. And what we're showing here is the gorilla at over 100 kilograms. We've got the chimpanzee, the orang, the bonobo. Then we have most of the monkeys in here. We have some prosimians and some small monkeys. We have a few things that are largely insectivorous. Tarsier is the one that's the best known, and it is a um, a prosimian. And then most of these are monkeys in here. There are colobine monkeys, and although they do not, most of them do not just eat leaves. This is black and white colobus. We have a lot of them here at the UC in San Diego Zoo but I would say the majority of primates are below the line here and what they are are the basic energy source is going to be frugivore they're frugivorous which means they're fruit eating the ones that are stippled here are fruit and insects and they tend to be the smaller ones you have ones eating fruit and leaves and they tend to be the larger ones if you look at ourselves, however, we fall right into the place where either we would be fruit and leaves or we are something else. And my argument would be, and I think all of us know, that we are something else. You now, when you look across living primates, to be an ex- exception to that body size constraint requires something special. When we look at the lepidinumer, which is a small prosimian that lives in Madagascar, it is way too small to be a folivore, yet it is. And what it does is that actually can either do coprophagy, which means it eliminates once, like a rabbit, it then eats that, what it has eliminated, and then it goes back through the gut. So it basically doubles its its GI tract. The other thing it does, and I'm showing the picture here, is it goes into torpor. And so what happens is that the animal just is in complete torpor, and in fact, uh, chimpanzees in some parts um, can actually go after these, in, um, in, not after lepolemur, but after some of the others that are going into torpor. The other animal I'm showing here is called an eye. It's also a prosimian, and it's way too large to eat insects. What it has, and I show the picture here, of its modified finger here, which allows it to go up underneath a piece of bark and lift up bark. It also has these bat-like ears that are quite mobile and allow it to hear where there are insects under the bark. But we are an exception too. We're too large to do uh, the frugivore, total fruit. We're too large for insects. So what do we do in order to be able to uh, eat what we want? So let's look again at the picture of the undergraduates. And again, I'll just focus the the white check marks are fruit on the table, and the X's are not because there's anything wrong with them, just so that you could see it. This energy is coming from starch. So mostly breads, there's a tortilla down there, crackers up over in here, You've got all kinds, you've actually got some bacon here that's also another type of energy, not starch, but is actually going to be fat as energy. So what you see is you've got a compilation of energies here that are not the strict primate type. So let's go through the fossil record for just a little bit. Let's begin with the Ardipithecus group down here. It's shown as all twigs off trees. We don't know yet exactly which of any of these individuals shown in pictures here are actual ancestors, so we'll just show them as clumps. If we look at Ardipithecus, 4.4 million years ago, we know, we're pretty sure anyway, that they were upright, that they were not like uh, living apes. They were not uh, knuckle-walking or fist-walking, knuckle-walking like the chimpanzee, or a different type of knuckle walking for gorilla, nor were they fist walking like the living orang. They were standing upright as far as we can tell. They still had pretty small brains. This is at 4.4 million years ago in Ethiopia, and it was found by Tim White and his colleagues uh, in, um, in Ethiopia. When we look at the ecosystem in which they lived, I'm showing you here bone chemistry data, and I won't go into what those data mean. But instead, I've shown you a picture of an elephant-like thing, the dinotherium, that had to be living in a very wet area. The big diamond here that's enclosed is Artapithecus, And what this is showing you is ecology across the base here. And what you have is what they're eating. And if they're eating here, then they are not eating exactly like a dinother. But if you look over here, these are all the animals that eat grass. And what I think you can see quite clearly is that they do not eat grass. They are not in an open savanna region. This is a giraffid, or at least a giraffid relative. This is a pig relative. And this one down here is a small, uh, like a clip springer, small um, ungulate that lives in forests. So when you think about it today, it could be what as we see today in western Tanzania. This is actually Jim Moore's field site, a colleague of ours from UCSD uh, in western Tanzania. And that is what we would call a woodland savanna or um, a savanna woodland either way not as closed as a woodland where the dinotheres lived, but pretty closed, so with trees. So if we were to put this back into perspective of what kinds of things there would have been to eat, when we look at Ardipithecus in a woodland savanna region, what we see is a lot of leguminous sea pods that can be eaten very high in protein, And what we're seeing is something that at least as an unripe, but still um, pliable in terms of the teeth, I'm just talking about teeth here, could be pulverized into a food that Ardipithecus could eat and would have both protein and fat, not as much of the frugivory, but probably frugivory as well because they could have eaten fruits on trees. Here's an example I want to talk about just a tad, and that has to do with, I've talked about what they could have eaten in terms of ecology. Let's look today at modern baboons. This is from the field site of my former colleague, Shirley Strum. Her field site is in Kenya. She's been there for close on to 40 years and has watched these baboons. And one thing she's noticed over the years is that this opuncha. An introduced apuncha produces fruit year-round and the baboots love it. Now, just like any cactus fruit, they have thorns on them, spines. And what these animals have learned is to do food handling and food processing. They can grab the fruit off, toss it in the sand, roll it around in the sand, and get all the spines off of them. And what you see here is the skin of one, and this is a baboon eating another one. So food handling and food processing is long-lived in the, in the primate lineage, and I think that's where we need to look if we're thinking of something in terms of something beyond Ardipithecus. When we start to think about that, we want to look at stone tools. And the earliest stone tools we have now are roughly 3.3 million years ago west of Lake Turkana, in this region. And we also have some from Ethiopia that are around two, maybe 2.9, 2.8 million years ago up in Ethiopia. So we've jumped from 4.4 million years ago in Ardipithecus to 2 to 3.3 million years ago in in terms of these, these tools. When we look at those tools a little bit more further on, I wanted to show you where we would be on the brain size chart. And where we are is in this region or in this region here. So we're looking at, if we're looking at three, we're looking here, that's roughly chimpanzee size. If we're looking here, we're moving a little bit farther forward in terms of what kinds of tools there might have been. We are starting to see somewhat, or at least seeing perhaps a slight brain size increase over and above that of a chimpanzee. I show this picture to show you what size these tools are. They would have been small tools. Some of them would have had cutting edges. Some would have not had cutting edges. They would have been more like just but small pebbles that you could pound with. The shape of the skull is definitely different than that of a chimpanzee. This is probably the earliest of the homos or else what we would call archaic homo. One of the things I wanna point out is that it's maybe hard to sort of visualize what this thing is. This is a person's thumb and they're holding the bone that is the hock, a bone in the hock of a horse. And the white arrow here, so it's a equid calcaneus, probably zebra, But what it is here with this is a cut mark from one of those stone tools that actually has an edge on it. And it looks as if, well, it probably was cut and either uh, butchered as an animal that was a carcass, it's unclear what it was, but definitely a cut mark on a tool at at least 3.3 million years ago. When we jump to, um, you can tell how few we have, If we jump to what we, in the more general sense, we would call Homo erectus in East Africa, the very early Homo erectus is usually called Homo ergaster, and that's why I've included it here. At 1.6 million years ago in Kenya, we have these stone tools that are larger. They have definitely a cutting edge on them. This is a drawing that Leslie Ayalo let me use. It was from National Geographic, a paper a piece that she did, uh, putting it all together where it looks as if you could cut, butcher an animal, smash the bone, get the marrow out, which is a high fat, which is something that she could actually feed to a baby. These individuals had, this is, was found on the west shore of Lake Turkana in 19... Uh, 19- late 1980s, 1984, 85, and then has continued work since then. Um, These, they had our body shape. They had our body size. Um, Their brains were at the low end of the modern human size, modern human brain size. And what you think they are getting some kind of meat from probably from carcasses and also the fat from the um, bones that have been smashed by this hammer stone down here. I think one of the things that has really excited a lot of people since he first proposed it in 1999 is the idea that cooking made us human. I'll quote from a paper that he wrote, uh, fire let our ancestors cook their vegetables, changing the course of human evolution. And there's absolutely no doubt it changed the course of human evolution. We are the only primate that cooks. And as with virtually all of Richard Rangham's ideas, they have, it's been exciting. It stimulated a lot of research, but, and that's why we know something about early fire. But I think the idea is that somehow they were cooking the way that modern Hadza do. These are tuber that and they are root tubers. When analyzed to do proximate analysis in lab at Wisconsin before I moved here at moved to University of California, San Diego, there's not a lot of starch in these. There's a lot of water and when they heat them very quickly over a fire They get a a hard outside that then can be peeled, and then they eat them without the peel. And it preserves the fluid inside, so they can be up to 80% water. And I think that's one of the very important parts of these tubers is the water. They have a a little bit of simple sugar. They have a little bit of starch, but mostly they're fiber. And what the Hadza do is they spit out quids. Um, These are not like what you think of as a potato. These are very, very different from a potato. But let's look at the evidence for fire, um, the very early parts of fire. Let me go back to this, how cooking made us human and it's catching fire. And there's a picture of humans cooking. So if we look at the earliest evidence of fire right now, we would say that probably the best evidence we have for fire is in South Africa at a cave called Vunderwerks, and it is in the northern province of South Africa. It has been found with tools. These, this bone is not from Vunderwerks. This is actually from East Africa, from Turkana, uh, this is a photo taken by and hands held by Henry Bunn. But this Wunderwerk's cave has various excavations and the, fi- the firecrack rock in here is too far back for it to be a natural fire. So there was fire and we have tools. How the tools were used is another thing. They could have been used in the same way that the drawing that I showed before with Homer Gaster was. In other words, this bone has been smashed, and re put. it's been put back together again by Henry Bunn, and they were going after the marrow in this bone. So we do have evidence there. We don't really know what it means. The other, in terms of very good evidence we have, is if from Israel. It's from a site called GBY site in Israel. This is the site uh, today, or at least in 2014 when I took the photo. Uh, it had all kinds of Aushalian tools on it. Um, this is John Speth, who is a member of CARTA, and this is the excavator, Namagoran Inbar, who was showing it to us. This is what the Jordan River looks like now, and what the site was was somewhere near there. We know that there's firecrack rock. She wrote a very interesting article that was in PNAS, In 2002, titled Nuts, Nutcracking, and Pitted Stones at GBY. And her emphasis there was on the fact that many of these tools could have been used for breaking open nuts, for nutcracking, pounding nuts, uh, and then the stones were left, pitted stones, but the nuts, of course, weren't, at 700,000 to 800,000 years ago. Again, fire... But what was the fire used for? We, we don't honestly know for sure. Just want to show you a picture because all of my pictures of tools there were hard. So I'm showing you a picture from 1994, another paper that she wrote on butchered elephants and associated artifacts at the GBY site. So what we have is the tool and this is her hand so you can see how large this tool is. We have down here the leg of a butchered elephant carcass Hunted? Unclear. We, we just don't know. So, let's start again. We have pictures of the Hadza, and we look at the Hadza. We know that there's fire in at least at 1.0 million years ago. 1.0. Were they cooking? Were they not? There's all sorts of exciting news awaiting us sometime in the future. And this little boy is going to Perhaps see some of it. So was it for cooking? Was it for warmth? Was it for scaring predators? When I talked to some of my archaeology colleagues, my paleoarchaeology colleagues about this and what they thought, informally, I think the consensus is that there was controlled use of fire 300 to 400,000 years ago. It will be really interesting to find out if there's any more. When we look at this, This is a Hadza photo taken back in 1985 or 86. And what she's pounding are the seeds of a baobab tree in the background. And it's flour in this basket. All you need to do is mix it with water. It's 36% protein and about 30% fat. All the protein. We have virtually all of the amino acids that are necessary. Does that mean that's what was going on? This is a tuber. This is a root tuber where they've peeled it and they're about to eat it. So food for thought. We have a primate diet. We've added tools. Possibly fire was one of those tools. We know it happened sometime. We don't really know what, when. Could it have been just these tools that were developed starting somewhere around in here and went on up here, allowed the breakdown of food products to the point where we could actually digest it easily? Or did we begin to use fire and we... Won't know for a while. We don't know now, but we could know in another week, next year. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.